Opportunity is not equally distributed. To every black entrepreneur listening, I want to make sure you have the tools and resources you need to grab your next opportunity. That's why I'm telling you about the One Million Black Businesses Initiative. The One Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. They're on a mission to start, grow, and scale one million black businesses by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of six million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field. From free business coaching to tailored training and an extended free Shopify trial. Shopify has made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program, and it's working. The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses, helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says... The one million black businesses experience for me was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. Chart your own path for business success with the one million black businesses initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at Shopify.com slash black print all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash black print. Well, More to Life for me is, this is where we are now, but I'm still way up. Like, I'm way up from where I started, but I'm still on the way up to where I'm going to go. And so I never want to feel stuck or stagnant. There is always more to life, right? And so one quote that I love is from Shirley Chisholm, and she said, we must not just reject the stereotypes that people have of us, but the stereotypes that we have of ourselves. And knowing all of the things that we can accomplish, we just have to get started. My name is Datavio Samuels, and welcome to The Black Print, where I sit with the innovators, disruptors, and change makers. My guests open up about every step of their journey and share lessons learned along the way to provide creators, entrepreneurs, and executives with a tangible blueprint for navigating to the top of their industry. This is The Black Print. Welcome to The Black Print. If it's your first time here, I want you to know that I start every episode out the same way with my favorite quote, which is that everybody sees you on the mountaintop, not everybody sees you on the climb. This is the show where we talk to the ceiling breakers, the disruptors, the innovators about their climb to the top. Today, I am blessed to be joined by this queen, my friend, Angela Yee, who has inspired us time and time again. Similar to today's sponsor, which is Life Water, which inspires moments of thriving. Uh, Angela has been thriving throughout her entire career. So before we go all the way back to the beginning, what I hate to do for my guests is introduce them. Mm-hmm. I want you to introduce yourself. And the only thing I'm gonna ask you is to not be humble. Like, <laughs> do that humble brag. Let them know who you are. You know, Tatavia, that's so funny. I always say how we downplay ourselves so much. And so I will say I'm Angela Yee, the host of the nationally syndicated Way Up with Angela Yee on iHeartMedia. I also am an entrepreneur. I own a coffee shop, Coffee Uplifts People, as well as a coffee brand. And I also, like you said, I'm the ambassador for the New York Public Library. Also, I'm an ambassador for uh, Brooklyn Sports and Entertainment Group, which is the Barclays, the Nets, the Liberty. And I also have a juice bar, which I'm about to reopen. So it's been closed for a few months, but fortunately, it's coming back. And I also have my podcast, Lip Service. I also know you do a little bit in real estate. Oh, yes. And of course, I've been dibbling and dabbling in real estate. And my latest thing is to make sure that I'm also a lot more involved in philanthropy. So I would love to add philanthropist uh, to that list of things that I do. Yeah, I love it. You are um, doing incredible work across so many different categories and industries. But before we get into that, I want to go all the way back to the beginning. So long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me what childhood life was like for Angela Yee. Where did you grow up? What was family life like? I grew up in Flatbush in Brooklyn. And when I was young, I had a very small, I would say, um, circumference of, of where I would go, right? I was 
going to school in the neighborhood. All my friends were there. The only place I ever traveled my whole life until I was a teenager was to the West Indies, to Montserrat. So it was always either in Brooklyn or in Montserrat and New York. And so even like New Jersey, I don't even think I'd really been to New Jersey until I moved there <laughs> too mm -hmm. much. So real quick on that one. So tell me what it was like being a child only knowing New York and getting to experience the West Indies for the first time. Do you remember, was there a difference? Was it a different yes. way of like, what was that like? Uh, well, what was weird for me, I remember going there really young. And you know, in New York, we're taught to not speak to people who we don't know. Don't make eye contact with people you don't know. Mind your business. But when you go other places in the West Indies, everybody was saying, hello, good morning, good afternoon, how are you? And at first, I was just like, you know, do I know this person? <laughs> so I feel like... It also helped me to have more patience, right? Because we're always, I think New Yorkers have this rushing mentality. Even when we're not trying to go somewhere and, and we don't have a time frame we need to be there, we're always in a rush. And so it kind of helped me just relax a little and be a little more polite. So we might be a, a rude type of people, <laughs> but leaving, it, it helps you understand that you, know, you don't have to always be in a rush and you can speak to people and you can be polite and be nice. Yeah, I'm such a believer in choice. What we often don't realize when we grow up is um, we fall into choices naturally because they become our norm and it's all that we know. And it takes being exposed to something else to give us the opportunity to choose something differently. And what I hear you say is, hey, the West Indies showed me that there's a slower way of life or maybe yeah. mm -hmm. um, a life where we more see each other as humans and we interact. And you made a conscious decision to shift that and make that a part of who you are, which is super dope. Okay, so you also mentioned this notion of you went to New Jersey. How did you get to New Jersey? Why are you in New Jersey? <laughs> so when I was in 10th grade, my parents moved to New Jersey. It was devastating for me. Because you have to think, like I said, I grew up in Brooklyn. All my friends were there. I didn't know anything else. That was like my world. And so I went to poly prep. I went to, first I went to public school. And even going from public school to private school in Brooklyn was a whole new thing. Like I went to public school in my neighborhood, but then I went to poly prep because of this program that I was in that helped kids who were from, quote, disadvantaged neighborhoods go to private school. And the goal is to eventually go to college. And so I ended up going to a, coming from an environment where it was people who looked just like me, people who I grew up with my whole life, to going to a space where I did not know one person, you know, except my brother. My brother was there. So he had his friends. He was there a year before me, but I didn't have any friends. I didn't know anyone. And it was a whole lot of white people. And mm. I wasn't used to that. And it was definitely a culture change for me and, and for them too, right? Because there weren't a lot of, of um, students of color, definitely not a lot of black students. And I, I felt like everybody wasn't too prepared for that. There were always different instances that would happen um, that would make me uncomfortable. So I ended up going to poly prep from seventh grade to ninth grade. And then we moved to Jersey when I was in 10th grade and I went to public school in New Jersey after that. And my brother stayed at poly because he was playing sports. He was playing lacrosse. And I will say at poly, I ended up playing a lot of sports. I ran track. I played basketball. I played field hockey. I did a lot of things that I probably wouldn't have done if I didn't go to school there because sports was such a huge part of what we were doing. And that was the positive side of it. I, I did get exposed to a whole lot of different things and learn how to cope in different situations. Mm. When uh, I had a very similar experience, I grew up in what people would consider the inner city of Colorado. And then for high school, my mom moved me to the suburbs, a very mm. different world. <laughs> um, and while that world gave birth to all of the opportunities and the education that I have today, I'm incredibly grateful. As a child, it was quite difficult going from all black spaces to mm -hmm. being the only black face in the room. And what I realized for me is, and I'm kind of hearing you say it, like you can feel alone, you can feel... Um, I don't know if the word is like empty or like on drought, but my question for you is, in this space where you are the only one, what did you do to create life, to give yourself more life, to help you thrive in that scenario? Well, I did have a lot of friends. It was just, there would be things that they would do. Like I could hear people, I could be friends with somebody, right? And I remember one day they were like, well, Angela, they were talking about black people. And they mm. were like, well, Angela, you're, cause I was like, well, I'm black. And they're like, well, you're not like the rest of them. Mm. Because I think they were comfortable around me. And I also feel like playing sports 
it builds a different type of camaraderie. And I think that the guys had it differently, right? Because they were the athletes that excelled. And so everybody loved them. I think for us, it was just a little bit different. But I will say there were definitely some great friendships that I made and people who were amazing. But there was, it's always a few you know, that stand out. And mm. I remember one of my friends was dating this guy. She was a white girl. She was dating this guy. And he was like, she told me that he said he would um, never touch like a black girl ever. And I was like, and why is that your boyfriend? And she was, you know, she ended up breaking up with him because the way that she grew up, her dad was married to a black woman. So, you know, it was just a whole thing. And I was like, why are you, how can you even talk to a person like that? And so, you know, I don't know if it's the not having exposure to other things, but it was it was definitely a difficult situation for me, and I was happy to go to public school after that. You're like, get me out of here. <laughs> um, I want to get into college, but you also just said something that's really interesting, which is um, you're not the average black girl. Or there are times where people are reading you as not being black like everybody else. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, people will say that. I think. Growing up, I always knew I was black because I grew up in a black neighborhood, went to a school that was like um, all black students. And so it was never a question back then. But my last name is Yi. And so and my dad is fully Chinese. And so sometimes people will make fun of that. You know, they'll make fun of what the language sounds like. You know, they always make fun of the eyes and, and things like that. But that never really bothered me. I think when I was younger, it made me have a tougher skin just because we would do this thing where we would all diss each other. So they mm-hmm. would say stuff about me and then I would come back at them. And it didn't feel malicious at the time when I was growing up because they were actually my friends. Sure. But I do know that... Um, you know, he was the only Chinese person in the whole neighborhood. So it was a, a little different. And that whole side of my family, we definitely celebrated Chinese New Year. There were certain things that happened, like, um, you know, even for weddings, it was all these different things that you had to do at a wedding that was different from a traditional mm-hmm. American wedding. And so I do appreciate having different senses of different cultures. And I feel like it did give me a lot more tolerance. I feel like sometimes people are really intolerant of people who are different or that they don't understand. But for me, it's always made me a lot more accepting of who people are. Yeah, I feel like we've definitely left lost tolerance over the last few years. Yes. Used to be able to have people who had two very different opinions and used to be able to tolerate each other. Now you have two people with two very different opinions and they can't even be in the same room, right? Um, Did you have thoughts on that before I go? I mean, I was just going to say, and I can understand it because there's a lot of prejudices and racism that exists on both sides. Like, I definitely have heard from, you know, my grandparents them say racist things about my black friends. And so that wasn't easy for me either because that's even for me being their granddaughter. They didn't really acknowledge me or my brother growing up because we were the black kids in the family. And so you wouldn't see pictures of us in my Mm -hmm. grandparents' house because— we didn't fit into what it was that they, you know, they were very upset when my dad married my mom. They mm-hmm. even didn't, they didn't go to the wedding. They didn't let my younger aunts and uncles go to the wedding. Just the ones who were old enough were able to decide and go, go on their own. So that's the question I was trying to get to, which is whether that dynamic existed. And does adult Angela Yee have a point of view about how that made young Angela Yee feel? Like... That idea where I step into a family and sometimes feel accepted and sometimes I don't. Did that have a longer term impact on Angela? I think when I was younger, I didn't even know what was happening because definitely my parents didn't tell us about it. I didn't realize it until I was a little older and could understand like, you know, why are we in the pictures? And then my mom, I think, really had an issue with it. And she's an only child. So she didn't have a lot of support. She didn't have any brothers or sisters. I didn't have any, you know, first cousins on that side of my family because of that. So that was all we really had. So my mom was always going to these family gatherings and feeling, I could tell she always has been feeling a little left out. Some of my aunts and uncles were great. Um, You know, it was just a thing with my grandparents growing up and they didn't really speak English either. So it's not like I could understand, but I know that they would be talking about me right in front of me. You're like, I can't tell what you're saying, but that tone, I I know what that tone means. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So very interesting. I think like early dynamics, we talk about um, going to some of the best schools growing up in the Bronx, but you have um, some interesting differences, right? You get to go to the West Indies and experience a different way of life. Um, You go to high schools where you are one of the only where you experience a different way of life. And then your actual family tree, right, is is multiple cultures all in one. (laughs) Um, All of those things make the incredible, beautiful 
woman that's sitting here today. So let's talk about post high school. Post high school, you went to college. Mm -hmm. Where'd you go? I went to Wesleyan University in okay. Middletown, Connecticut. <laughs> Why'd you pick there? I wanted to go there because it just, when I went to visit the campus, it felt really safe. I like the idea of not having to have like, um, cause I visited other schools and there was like a lot of security and to get into the dorms, it was, this place was just like open. You know, we didn't have all that security. We just could walk from place to place. It was small. Mm -hmm. And I liked the fact that I didn't have to get on a bus to get to class because I, I went to visit Syracuse, which I loved, but I was like the weather. And I was like, I don't know about this bus situation. You know, I went to visit UPenn and Wesleyan just felt very, um, Family, like, and then it was also um, no core curriculum and it was very liberal. And I feel like I'm a very liberal person. And so I wanted to go to a really liberal school. Just even the different houses that they had, they even had a house called Eclectic for people mm. that were just like very different and eclectic. Mm. And so I appreciate that we can celebrate uh, being unique. And mm. so that's why I wanted to go there. For the people who haven't gone to college or are considering going to college, what to you was the advantage or the benefit of no core curriculum? What does that mean and why did you appreciate it? Well, uh, so I didn't have to take classes that I didn't want to take. And so, you know how sometimes you go to school and you're paying money to go to school, but there are certain credits that you have to get. So you have to take, you know, calculus or whatever you don't want to take, but you have to take it. I didn't have to take anything that I didn't want to take. And so I was able to take a lot of writing classes. I did screenwriting. I did playwriting. I took Shakespeare. Just whatever I felt like I wanted to take, I could do that. And so for me, if I'm paying to go to school, I kind of want to. But I understand both sides of it, right? I understand a lot of us don't end up doing what we went to college for. So it's nice to have a foundation of different things that could be beneficial uh, for the future. But I do appreciate just taking the classes I wanted. Yeah. Okay, so you took the classes you wanted, which means you majored in what? English. Okay. So <laughs> coming out of college, what was your dream? At that moment in time, what did you think Angela Yee was going to be? When I graduated from college, I got a job um, just temping because in my head I was going to be this um, this writer this, that all I did was have my day job and then go home and just write. And I wanted to write, you know, fictional novels and I wanted to do photography because I did photography in high school and in college. Do you still shoot? I actually do have a camera. I haven't in a while, but during the pandemic, I was definitely outside shooting things. And I, I mean, I can develop my own pictures and everything. My parents actually had a dark room in the basement growing up. Oh, dope. So both my parents did photography also. And so I love that. And I have pictures that um, from when I was in school that I'm like, I might frame these and put them up like as artwork. You know, I appreciate it so much. And so um, that was what I thought was going to happen. In my head, I had this romantic vision of like having some BS job during the day. And then I'm just writing and then putting out novels. And then that's all I did. But what ended up happening was I attempt for three days, quit, because <laughs> I hated you quit? it. Okay. It was awful. Okay. It was like what a, made it awful, though? It was, um, <laughs> all I did was open envelopes all day. That was the job. It was just sitting here opening envelopes. We had no windows. You couldn't talk on the phone. And I'm just sitting here, and I was like, this is miserable. I cannot, like, do this. And so the fact that I even made it that long was amazing. Um, but I applied for some other jobs, but one of the internships I did in college was with Wu-Tang. And so when I graduated, I went and I stopped by their office one day and they were like, we've been looking for you. We want to hire you. This is before people had cell phones. Okay. All this, every, everybody they couldn't just find you. Yeah, they couldn't pick you up and find me. you. <laughs> and so I was like, yes, it was a day of Summer Jam. There was a day that, um, Wu-Tang was performing at Summer Jam and it was the day they got banned from Hot 97 after that performance. Mm, Wu-Tang, so I grew up on the West, so I was definitely more West Coast versus <laughs> East Coast, but I was all about Wu-Tang. Did you have a favorite, is it, is it, can you, did you have a favorite member of Wu-Tang? Um, well, Jizz and I used to manage him individually. Okay. So he's always my favorite. I know him the best. Like he's, he taught me how to play chess. He's the one that's always been, um, you know, vegetarian and then vegan. Mm. And so I appreciate him. I think he gave me a lot of gems just from working with him. He used to always tell me to listen more than I talk. I don't know how that worked now, but he did give me that as a piece of advice for when I'm going into rooms and meeting people and, and doing things for the first time. And it has been valuable in certain situations for me. And just even how to carry myself, you know, because he's a very, um, he's a really quiet person, but he's really, really smart. And so he would always be watching documentaries when we would be on the road, everybody else would be, while he would just be playing chess in mm. the back all the time. So I appreciate things like that. 
Um, I love your answer because my answer now feels super superficial. So in my mind, I'm thinking like, who's the best rapper? And I love Method Man, like I'm Method Man until I die. But I love that your answer was rooted in him as a human and who he was and the way he lived his life and the way that he was able to coach and pour into you. So I love your answer way better. Yeah, than, and Liquid Swords was answer. one of my favorite albums that they okay, did. That's yeah. a classic album to of me. Course. I mean, a lot of them have classic albums, but Liquid Swords is definitely one of my favorites. Yeah, amazing. Okay, so what were you actually doing for Wu-Tang besides learning how to play chess? And <laughs> <laughs> from, what, what were you actually doing as an intern at Wu-Tang? So and was, who were you working for? So first, when I was an intern, I interned at Wu-Tang Management in Staten Island, right? And that was just a summer job, but when I came back Back to work full time, it was uh, for Divine. Divine is Riz's brother. He was the CEO. So Wu Tang had like a whole bunch of different companies under them, and they had all their artists sign to different labels, which was something that was really different for people back then. So they had Razor Sharp Records, mm. they were, um, you know, Loud Records, Def Jam, Electra. Um, it was all different labels that the guys were signed to, MCA. And so um, they had a deal at Priority Records. So they had so many different things going on. So they had Wu Tang Management, they had all the different labels. Um, they have Wu-Tang Corporation and so um, Wu-Tang Studios. So I was the person that was the assistant. So basically everything that was going on, he wasn't in the office a lot. Mm. And so every time they couldn't reach him, everybody was calling. Like if you were there, the receptionist every day was Angela, line two, Angela, line three, Angela, line four. Because mm. I was just really fielding calls for him. But we did develop such a great relationship that he trusted me a lot to be in the office. Like I had the checkbooks. I couldn't sign them, but I was writing the checks. I had to deposit all the checks that they had to do, and he would have to come in and sign everybody's checks all the time. But I was in charge of payroll, um, you know, all of those things. Biggest lesson learned from that season with Wu-Tang. You're managing phone calls, you're writing checks. You're, what's the biggest lesson or takeaway that you have from that season? I would say to spread around your businesses because for them— they had their hands in so many different spaces that there was money coming in. So that's kind of a multiple streams of income type of thing. But if one relationship collapsed, they had, you know, 20 other ones lined up ready. And yeah. so they had the publishing. They had a whole lot of, of things happening. So for me, it's not putting all your eggs in one basket. So there you learn the power of diversifying your revenue streams. What was... Um, if you think about it, did you have like any major highlight? Like, is there a moment that you're like, this moment was incredible and I'll never forget it during this time while I was working with Wu-Tang? Let me see. Or an opportunity that you would have never gotten anywhere else? I mean, you know what was amazing? I got to sit down with the CEOs of a lot of these labels. And I was so young at the time. I remember we um, planned, well, there were two things that were major. One was Park Hill Day was an annual event that they did for the community. And so I was part of um, planning that. And I had Eminem come out and perform. And so that's how I really know him, right? Mm -hmm. I had him come out. This was before he was signed at all. And this is when he was just doing Lyricist Lounge appearances. And so I'm the one that got Eminem to come and perform at Park Hill Day. And I know that was like a huge deal for him at the time and he killed it. Um, and another thing that I would say is we had um, did this boat ride. So they wanted to do this Wu-Tang foundation. And so I planned this boat ride. And it was really cool. Like, I remember Leora Cohen came, Kevin Lyles came, all, you know, all the people they did business with came. So that was really exciting for me to put that together for the first time and probably the only time okay. they ever did it. <laughs> all right, last question. <laughs> last question on this one, which is um, how do you earn the right to do so much? If you came in as an intern and if your title said assistant, now you are the person who is planning parties again, writing to like, how did you, as a young person, how did you earn the right for people to give you that power? I would say this. I was always the first person in the office every day and usually the last person to leave. And I also established a good rapport with everyone, so they trusted me. They knew that I wasn't letting anything slide. I was always trying to give people answers. Even when I couldn't get answers, I would stay on top of it. I would respond to people. I think it's really bad when people don't communicate. You know, sometimes you need to get something done. And some, instead of somebody giving you a straight answer, they'll give you the runaround or they'll just ignore you. I was always really good at making sure that I was responding to people, even if I had to try to cover for somebody. That's even in management. I think that's important because... People feel disrespected if they just don't get an answer. So it's really important just to give people the respect to say, look, 
I'm trying to get this done for you. Here's the deal. Here's a realistic timeline. I wish I had better news for you. Rather than you just going ghost. Mm -hmm. And so I think they saw how responsible I was. And I did care about my job a lot. You know, so much that that was like my top priority in life back then. But I enjoyed it also. And so all of those things, I felt like they were like, okay, she's, they would give me a little bit more responsibility, a little bit more. And I was always willing to step up and volunteer to do things too. So I think that's important to when there's something that needs to get done for you to be able to be like, okay, well, let me handle that for you. Okay, so let's push through Wu-Tang. What's the next job and why do you leave? So like, I yeah. actually left that job to go work at a job. I had a friend that I used to intern for at MTV. His name was Fred Jordan. Um, he's since passed. But oh, he worked at MTV, and he used to be like, Angela, I want you to work, like, someplace else. I don't know why. He, people used to have this vision of Wu-Tang like it was some wild and crazy place. And, yeah, at times it was. But they actually were amazing mm. to work with. Like, they were so respectful to me. And so I was appreciative of having that job. And I'll never forget, he got me a job working for um, D'Angelo's label at Virgin Records. And so the day that I went, and it was more money than I was making, so and that was a big deal to me. And they gave me the position of general manager of the label, which was mm. huge. I was so young. Yeah, how old do you think? I was like 24 years old. Oh, wow, GMing at 24. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what they were. So anyway, I, um, I remember going to talk to my boss, to Divine, and I went to go sit down with her. I just I can picture the whole scene. And I was like, hey, can I talk to you? And he was like, first of all, I just want to say, you're doing such a great job. Everyone loves you. And I was like, okay, well, here's the deal. And then I had to tell him that I was leaving. And, you know, there's certain things that I'm like, if I could go back, would I mm. would have rather stayed there because the next job was not it for me. But, um, you know, I did that. I took a chance. I worked at the label. It was called Chiba Sounds. And that just ended. That was like one of those jobs where every day you wake up and you're like, I don't want to do this. Mm. Maybe I should just call out. How long did you sit in that job? How long did you, I'm a big believer that we should solve the puzzles that God put us on earth to solve. <laughs> that is clearly a puzzle that was not built for Angela Yee. How long did you sit in that role? Um, less than a year. Okay. Yeah, definitely less than a year. And after that, that's actually, I went to go work at a marketing company. And that is um, the job that I had, that it was just me. Um, the CEO and the receptionist, that was it. And I was like really writing marketing plans. We had some big clients. We had Heineken, we had Averex, we had Sprint Mobile, we had the New York Liberty. Um, we had that clothing line, Willie Esco. Okay, we had yeah, a lot of, of different yeah, brands. Yeah. <laughs> we had some, um, some, things ha some things moving back then. And I, I remember though, I wasn't making a lot of money and I was doing so, I was literally working seven days a week. I was going to Heineken events. I was going to New York Liberty games. You know, I was in the office, I was going to meetings, and I felt like I need to be making more money, you know, with all these different clients, and I'm doing everything. And so, you know, my boss kept promising me more money, and he wasn't delivering on that. So I said, listen, I need to be able to do other things, and I can't sustain, um, you know, I had student loans, I had rent, I had everything I needed to pay, and it just was not happening for me. And so I started doing other things, and I started working with Nile Rogers with his distribution label. Um, Nile Rogers is a legend, by mm -hmm. the way, and that was a super blessing. So for the folks who don't know, let's talk about the legend. So Nile and he and I are still like this to this day, but Nile is part of the group Chic that did Freak Out, Good Times. He's the bassist, and he is like the most famous ever, you know, when it comes to that. He um, produced Madonna's album. Mm -hmm. He did oh, Notorious for Duran Duran. He did the scoring for Coming to America. Um, he did Upside Down. He did We Are Family. Oh, wow. You know, know, huge, huge, huge songs and super talented. And so he's the person that, um, oddly enough, I had a meeting with him. <laughs> this is crazy how I even met him. But, you know, it just all goes back to relationships and establishing good relationships with people. But... Um, I ended up meeting with him because he was going to give a distribution deal to this group, but he was doing it through this woman that didn't work with the group, and it was a group affiliated with Wu-Tang, right? Uh -huh. And so one of um, his friends asked me, please, he's about to give this person a million dollars, and they don't even have, and he's going to get, like, scammed. You have to talk to him. Because Nal is such an artist. Like, he goes off of vibes. He's amazing. And so I went to go meet with him, and he was like, I like you. I like your vibe. What do you do? <laughs> And then he hired me to come do marketing at his distribution label. And that's really how that started. 
And so when I left the marketing company, I ended up freelancing. He gave me an office space in their building and I was doing marketing for his distribution label. And he also does a lot of scoring for uh, video games. And so that's a, you know, a huge business too. Of course. And then I was working for a different clothing lines. And actually some of the brands that the marketing company that I worked for, Varsity was one of them. After I left, they decided they wanted to come with me instead. Mm. And so I ended up getting like six clients all together and having like my own <laughs> consulting firm. So is this um, one of the key themes in which I learned, you learned it from Wu-Tang, but when I think about you as an entrepreneur, you know, we talk about you being a multi-hyphenate. It's having all of these multiple um, streams of income. Is this when you start to build multiple streams of income? Yes. Yeah, okay, all right. So <laughs> I was I, making so much money at that time because <laughs> I just had, and I didn't have to be anywhere all the time. Mm. And I also- What does that mean I didn't have to be anywhere? I didn't have to be in an office. Like I could, you know, move around. I was still managing Jizza. So uh -huh. if I needed to go on the road to do anything, I could go do that. And so it was an ideal situation for me because I could show up in the office if I had something to do. I had an office space if I needed it, but then I would just be going to meetings. I would be traveling and I wasn't tied into having to be somewhere every day. So can we count in this moment how many jobs you have? In my mind, <laughs> I think there's three. Where at that, um, at that when moment. I was yeah, yeah. Okay, so I had um, Jizza. Jizza. I had uh, Shot Brothers. It was a leather company. Okay. I had Varsity, which was a clothing line. Then it was like this online music. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was called mh2o.com. So I had them as a client. And then I had Nile Rogers with something else distribution. And those five, are there synergies between them? So a lot of times I see young folks who have like 20 ideas, trying to do 20 ideas at one time. And I'm a big believer that you like build one that mm -hmm. will give birth to the other 10. And if you're going to build more than one at the same time, then there should be synergies. Yes. Were there synergies in the work that you were doing? It was all music and fashion related. And so that was great. And I remember um, even just styling different people with Varsity. I gave Eminem clothes and he wore it on the cover of a magazine back then. That was huge for them. You know, I would be styling like the guys from Wu-Tang. I gave them clothes from Varsity and they did a whole photo shoot with the clothes on for another magazine um, feature that they had. Beautiful. And so it was just easy for me. I had access and shot also. I had access to these clothing brands. So that would help me with the artist side of things. And then even with Nile Rogers, I remember doing an office party for him with Tangeray at the mm. time. And they were so excited about it though because they didn't have things like that happening. But it was like they were doing this... Um, promotion where they were just doing office parties for people and putting that together, which was nice. So if this was the end of the story, we'd be like, yeah, here, there's more life. Like you did a great job, but, <laughs> but there's also more to the story, yeah, right? Yeah, so, so early. Yeah, yeah. So where do we go? So, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so where do, we, where do we go next? How do we get into radio? So the last one of the clients that I had was Eminem's clothing line, Shady Limited. I was at the... Um, I was at the premiere for the Chappelle show, the mm. first ever episode of the Chappelle show. Oh, wow. And Jizzit was on that episode performing, because remember he had performances. At the end, now I remember, yeah. yeah I'm on it too. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the back Are of you really? Head. If I yeah. go back, okay, I'm gonna go look. <laughs> But um, so I'm at the premiere for the Chappelle show and Paul Rosenberg, M's manager, is sitting right in front of me and he turns around and he's like, oh, by the way, we're starting a clothing line. I want you to come work there. So mm -hmm. I was like, okay. So I end up the next day calling him and then they just, you know, they, he knew he wanted me to work there. So they hired me um, as a marketing person and I was freelancing for them. And then eventually they ended up bringing me in-house full time. So I stopped all of the um, freelancing and got like a, you know, a stable, good salary to be somewhere full time. Mm. And so I started working for Eminem's clothing line. And then after that, um, I ended up going to work at this radio station at Sirius. So real quick, before we do the radio, in order for you to give up what were all the revenue streams on one side for this one, there <laughs> had to be a reason. More money, more something like, why do you trade? what you had going. I don't have to be in an office for anybody. I can move on my own. I've got all these different streams of income for this other one opportunity. What makes you say this one opportunity is worth it? Um, financially, you know, they gave me what I asked for in a salary. And then I think I had, uh, I did have like a loyalty to Paul and to Eminem and my friend Tracy that worked there also. And I liked their whole staff. 
And so I thought it would be nice. Also, it was a brand new clothing line. I love new, like, I love working on something mm. that's new or working on something that's the underdog. Mm. And so for me, this was something that was brand new that I would be able to help them launch. And so that was appealing to me. And then I was also like, maybe I should try this because I've been running around chasing checks mm. for so long. And, you know, sometimes chasing checks is not an easy thing. Not at all. And it also isn't a stable feeling. Right. When you're relying on like, okay, I got these different streams of income. I got to get paid for this. I got to get this. I got to get this check, you know, and it was just me. It wasn't organized. I didn't have like a team of people. It was me alone. And so it was starting to be a lot for me at one time. And so I was like, this was attractive. It was a good salary. Let me try this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So you do that role and then that leads you into radio. Tell yes. me how you get into radio. So after um, Shady Limited, you know, that clothing line no longer exists. <laughs> but after all of that happened, for a little while, it was the first time in my life that I didn't have a job, right? Um, you know, I got laid off and I had never had a moment. So I was like, you know what? Instead of me jumping into something else, I'm going to take a little time to collect my unemployment. Were you happy? Were you sad? Were you depressed? Were I you... was fine. Like, yeah, fine. Because I always had been doing so much, I needed a reset. And I also wasn't sure what I wanted to do in the future. So I went on hot jobs. Okay. <laughs> and I was like, what can I do next? And so Hotjobs.com. Yeah, hotjobs. <laughs> and I was like, let me look at these job listings and just to see what's out there. So I was looking at all these different things that you could do. And I was like, maybe that'd be good for me. And then I oh, saw wow. Sirius Satellite Radio had an opening in their marketing department that they were looking for somebody. So I was like, all right, you know, that sounds like it could be interesting. That kind of puts together things that I love, marketing, music, and Eminem had just gotten his Shade 45 station there. And so we still had such a great relationship. I called up um, my friend Tracy and she was like, yeah, you should talk to Paul. Tracy works for them also. And so I called Paul and I was like, Paul, you know, they're looking for um, a marketing person. I was like, if you can just put in the word for me to get an interview, that would be amazing. I'm going to send over my resume, but just let them know that you know me like as a reference. And he was like, well, you know, we are looking for a sidekick on the morning show with Cypher Sounds. And he was like, you should try it if you're interested. And I was like, okay. He was like, listen, it's not a guaranteed job. It's just an audition. They've tried out some other people, but you know, just see what happens. And so I went up there and I auditioned. It was around. Why did you audition? Like, if you never want, did you ever want to be in front of the camera? I no, I hadn't. So what made what <laughs> makes you say I never wanted to be in front of the camera? But this opportunity. Well, there was is, no cameras at this time. You have uh, to think in radio. It was not. Um, you had a voice for radio. Yeah, yeah it was. Yeah, you yeah, got yeah. a face for radio. Yeah, face is for what radio. They used to say. Yeah, 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 exactly. exactly. <laughs> So literally, I'll be in there like, you know, in my pajamas. It didn't matter what you look like because nobody was seeing that at first. Did it feel low risk? I mean, you're putting your voice, your ideas out there in a way that you never It was hard yeah. at first. You know, people don't understand if you've never done it, how um, intimidating it could be to just talk on the radio. And then also you have to be factual about things as, as factual as possible. You have to get right to the point. It's not the same as just having a conversation mm -hmm. and people have to be interested in what you have to say also. And you have to be well-versed on different things. And so for me, it was really difficult at first. And, you know, back to Wu-Tang, the week that I started was the week that Old Dirty Bastard passed away. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I had, um, Jizza call in to talk and he, that was the only interview anybody did. And this is the week, you know, that I started. And so I did have some relationships um, outside of there that were really beneficial just from my jobs that I've had in marketing and in other spaces. So it was good because I was able to bring some of that in and bring some of that knowledge. And um, that's how it started. And I worked for free at first, you know, for, for months before they actually hired me. And they hired me after a Jay-Z interview. How did you, before we do Jay, how did you get good at your craft? So this is something you've never done before. You're pulling some stuff from the past. How do you, how do you, do you have a process for how you decide I'm going to get really good at this thing? You really have to listen to yourself. So you have to, uh, they would every day give me a CD <laughs> of the show. And so I would go listen to it. And it was awful. Like I would cringe at myself, but that's really how you get better. You have to listen to how you sound and figure out what things you need to change and what things you need to improve on. And that's the only way. And the other thing that I did was I had to make sure that I was a lot more informed on what was happening, watching the news, reading the paper, making sure, because I wasn't aware of everything that was going on. I definitely wasn't paying attention to anything internationally. 
I knew what was happening in New York, but satellite radio was nationwide. So what's happening in other cities? I had no idea. It wasn't like I had traveled around a lot either um, so much. And so for me, it was a process of being dedicated to paying attention to the world and making sure that I was well-versed on that. And then um, in addition, listening to myself and being really critical and listening to other people's criticism too. Mm-hmm. They let us know. Those callers were live. And when I first started, they were like, who is that? She sucks. Get her <laughs> off there. But I remember one guy called in and said that. And then he called in a couple of weeks later. He was like, I just want to take back what I said. I really like her now. Mm. You know, so people had a chance to see me improve. The evolution. But it was, um, fortunately, it was in a time that it wasn't like going viral and people didn't have social media. And Sirius was still a lot newer. So yeah. it was a lot of truck drivers that had it at that time. And so I didn't have to deal with too much critiques with before I was able to learn. You know, it got a lot more popular later, but at least back then, like little by little, I didn't tell anyone either, little by little people would find out. They would be like, I think I just heard you on, on is that you? And I'm like, oh my God, you know, but I got, you know, fortunately things picked up. Yeah, I mean, but even in that as a gym, I think, you know, people always say you don't have to, yeah, what's the quote? The quote, it's like you, um, Whatever the quote is, it's about you can't be great if you don't start, but you have to start to be good. You know that quote? Like you have to start somehow. Anyways, the point that I want to make is this notion of um, you don't have to start and be public for the world to hear you. You can go in your room. You can practice. You can listen. You can perfect your voice. That's what you did. And you got to do it in what seems like a low risk environment, right? To your point, there's no social, there's no viral, (laughs) the whole world's not listening. So by the time the world is listening to you, you have already become a student of your craft and you were good. Well, you know what else they told me they liked about me was that I never did it before. Mm. And so I didn't already have it set in my mind what things should be like, this is how I do it. Mm. It was more like I was a sponge. And so I was willing to listen and kind of adapt to what would work better. And they said other people had came in and they were like, no, this is how I do it. No, this is how it's done. Mm. And so for them, they appreciated the fact that I was newer and I was more willing to learn because I wasn't the, you know, I was just a sidekick at that time. So did you ever have like role models? Was there ever somebody you were looking at whose voice you wanted to emulate or someone who did something? Like for me, when I think about speaking, like I look at people like T.D. Jakes. Mm -hmm. I think he is so insightful and so descriptive in the way that he can bring things to life like nobody else can. I would love to borrow from that gift. Was there anyone who you were kind of looking at and watching and going, okay, I like what they're doing over here. I like what this part, did you have any of that? It was interesting because there were people I grew up listening to, but I never thought I would be in that position. Mm -hmm. So I never paid attention because I knew that was a space I would be in. You know, obviously I grew up listening to Angie Martinez in New York. And so that was, you know, she was everything to me. You'd be like, oh my God, it's Angie Martinez. And even Wendy Williams, listening to Wendy Williams on the radio and how she can be really conversational. Um, So, and it was all women really that I kind of, there were certain people like I I did, Later on, appreciate Chris Rock when he had his show on HBO. I enjoyed that. And Chelsea Handler and people like that. But um, because I like people who are funny, too. Mm. (laughs) That's always um, like I love comedy and comedians and all of that. And so that's more of the lane that I was looking in. I remember somebody told me one day, um, you'll never be Oprah. And I'm like, I've never tried to be Oprah. I love Oprah. But that's not what I'm trying to emulate. And so I think... um, it probably worked for me that I wasn't really doing that. I appreciated a lot of people, but because this wasn't what I ever thought I would be doing, I wasn't studying it. Mm-hmm. How do you go from sidekick um, on Shady Radio to co-host of The Breakfast Club? Well, so I ended up getting my own show after uh, Cypher left to go do Hot 97. And um, they actually wanted me to come on the show, too, and I turned that down. And I did that because I wanted my own show. I had my own show at Sirius. It was called The Morning After with Angela Yee, which I still think is a great, clever name. But um, (laughs) (laughs) it was called The Morning After. And so I had my own show. And I had lip service also that was Mm. once a week over there. Can we talk about what lip service is real quick, just so folks know? So lip service, it started off as a segment on Cypher's show once a week. And then people enjoyed it so much that they gave me my own show. They came to me as serious and we're like can we make this into a, its own show and so I was like absolutely so I had a nighttime show once a week and it was me and when I first started it it was Leah Rose and she was the um she was the music editor at Double XL and so it was basically a space for women who normally don't get heard to be heard so that would be like the video vixens or um 
just anybody that we wanted it to be a space where women were in the room making the men uncomfortable. Mm. That was really the initial plan because I didn't see spaces where it was like an all women cast and then the guys were coming in and they're like, oh my God, mm-hmm. like what's you happening to flip here? The script. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was, it was supposed to, well, it was, it was an empowering thing for people. We had a lot of amazing moments. Um, doing lip service, but it's still, and I still have it as a podcast now mm. and still enjoying it. And it's still like an all woman cast. And then we bring people in and it's just a fun interview. That's not about a typical, like, um, you know, is your album coming out? It's more about your personal life, which mm-hmm. I think people enjoy talking about their personal life. Some people will be like, oh, I didn't need to know that. But I think it's, it's good for people. It, our relationship, uh, it's about sex and relationships. And sometimes people don't have anyone to talk to about what's going on in their life or questions that they have. So a lot of people will tell me that lip service helped them a lot mm. in that aspect. Mm-hmm. So you've got your own segment. They're asking you to be, to have your own show. Yes. Somehow you end up at the Breakfast Club. How yes. About? And so the Breakfast Club happened because I knew I was ready to make a move out of Sirius. I was just, I had been there for six years. I felt like it wasn't going to get anything. I kind of hit the ceiling. You know, I was having some issues there with some of the upper management. And so I was like, it's time for me to figure out what's next. And a few different um, stations had approached me, Atlanta, Philly, and then New York did. New York was last um, to come and ask me about doing a show. First, they wanted me to come on just to like fill in for people. Sirius told me I wasn't allowed to do it. But I told G-Spin, I was like, look, if there's ever an opportunity for me to come on full time, I don't want you to think that I'm dedicated to staying as serious. Mm. I'm open for it. And so when there was an opportunity, they called me and they told me they were putting together a show. I was the last person to sign on from um, Charlemagne, Envy, and me. I was the last mm. person. Envy was already over there. Charlemagne signed on. And then I was like, I, my lawyer needs to... Because <laughs> they, you know, in radio, they... Um, They gave me the contract and wanted it back the same day. And I never want to feel rushed into Mm. doing something where you sign a contract that you're beholden to. And you're like, why did I sign this awful contract? For the rest of my life, yeah. Right. So I sent it over to my attorney and I was like, my attorney's looking at it. They're like, we need it back. They told me they literally waited in the office till eight o'clock at night for me to um, send it back. Because the next day they were going to let their morning show go and then have to transition over. Mm -hmm. And so it all happened really quickly when we did it. Mm -hmm. What was special about The Breakfast Club when it was created? There's something different, unique about The Breakfast Club from at least my experience, what I saw from nationally syndicated radio. I don't think I've ever seen one with a collection of hosts like that before. Right, Right. and that was the thing people kept telling us it's never gonna work. Usually in a morning show is one main host and then the cast is around that host. This is the first time they've ever had a morning show that was um, three people that were equally like, okay, part of the show. And, and that was really important to me because when they offered me the opportunity at Hot 97, they said my name wouldn't be on the show. I wouldn't be like an equal part of it. And I felt like I deserved that at that point. And so I wouldn't have left my show with my name on it to go do something to not even be an equal part of it. And so that was important to me. And I said that from the beginning and they were like, no, it's absolutely all equal. Mm-hmm. So you guys end up um, going on a journey to build what no one had ever built before and what everybody said was not going to be successful. Right. When you look back on that run and against that frame, you're getting ready to do what is going to fail. How do you feel about that journey? Well, they were wrong. No. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, but I, I mean, I'm grateful that it, w- it was a lot of work. And I will say in the beginning, it wasn't great. Mm. It wasn't. The show was not living up to the expectations that they had. People were like, oh, this is failing because the ratings don't come in right away. You have to give it some time. And so it's something brand new that was getting introduced. We were only on in New York at first, so we didn't start off syndicated. That was always the goal, but we didn't start off that way. And so um, it was definitely a journey of us getting to the space where we were comfortable and then where I think what really helped us a lot was social media. And also just the video aspect yeah, of it. Yeah, y'all crushed the YouTube game. Yeah, that's what, and I said that from the beginning because the reason why people knew me when I was at Sirius was because my videos would be on Worldstar all the time. It was so bad that Sirius put out a, a email to the whole office saying no one was allowed to put out videos. Mm. And, I, and so I was like, well, why is that an issue? That's really just marketing for what you guys are doing. It's not like we're putting a whole show out. It's just clips. 
And they were like, no, you're not allowed to do that anymore. And if we see you doing that, it would just turn into a whole thing. Mm. But I always felt like it didn't make sense to me. I get it. It's a paid subscription that you have to have. But don't you want people to want to have it? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and so I thought they like gotta know that, what they're missing. They gotta, right, yeah. you got to see this and be like, oh, my God, I got to sign <laughs> exactly, up so I can exactly. see this when it happens. And so when I went to um, Power, I was like, listen, we need to make sure a video is a huge, important part of what it is that we do. So they got a dedicated person to come and film for us. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that puts you very early in that game, clearly, yes. where, yeah, where nobody was doing that. <laughs> um, okay, so you go to the Breakfast Club, you built what everybody said was impossible, and then you make a decision to leave. Right. So now you're at the top of this mountain. You guys have like the number one nationally syndicated show in the nation, um, crushing it as a collective. And you decide it's time to go. What makes you feel like what makes you make the decision that says this season is over? It's on to the next mountain. I feel like, well, we were there for 12 years, uh, all of us together. And I knew from a few years ago that at some point I was ready to go do my own show again. Mm. I felt like, okay, I've done the way that I am. Once I feel like, okay, I've done what I can do, what's coming next. We got into the Radio Hall of Fame, which was huge for us. You know, we had some iconic moments, but I also felt like a lot of people didn't know who I was just because when you're on a show with two other people, you're barely getting to really show who you are. And so even as far as me curating, like what guests I want to come on, there might be things that I care about that they don't care about. And so that's not going to be something that's going to be meant. Now I can be like, okay, I watch Real Housewives of Atlanta, or let me get this doctor on to talk about Ozempic and Wagovi and what's happening with that. And so now I'm able to curate, you know, I watch um, Love After Lockup. Let me get Monique and Derek up here. (laughs) You're in control. (laughs) Right. I'm in control. And I also am paying attention to what people are watching and what people are paying attention to because there's certain things that maybe I wouldn't really watch if everybody wasn't watching it. But I also know that part of my job is to stay in tune with what other people are in tune with. And so for me, being able to curate my own content was important to me. Being able to do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it, that was something that I knew for years. I was like, I just want to be able to show who I really am. And even with the Wealth Wednesdays that I do, focusing on finances, right? And um, that's always been important to me. I've always done that kind of more on my own, but I wanted to be able to make that. Now it's a weekly segment on my show. That's not something that I feel like I could have done done there, but now I have my own platform. So the things that I'm really into, um, helping promote this financial wellness and bringing on different experts, it's been really great for me. Yeah, it's beautiful. Revolt is very much anchored in this idea of controlling our own narrative. And you've moved into a place where you now get to control the, the narrative around you. Um, Okay, before we get out of here, now that you're on to your next mountain, I want to walk through and talk through all of the revenue streams really quickly, and then I'm going to let you get out of here. You ready? Okay. Okay. So on this mountain, let's start counting the number of jobs that that you have. Let's talk about them. Okay. So obviously, Way Up with Angela Yee at iHeart. Which is a new show. That's my new show. Yes. Nationally syndicated. Um, After that, Lift Service. That's my podcast, weekly podcast. And we actually even did a Live Nation tour with that um, previously. Coffee Uplifts People, that is a coffee brand, right, that they sell in Whole Foods in New York and it's coming to Target um, at the end of this month. And so it's a brand, but it's also a coffee shop. The coffee shop is in Brooklyn, but we also have one inside of the Daily Paper store. We're doing a Shopify um we're doing a Shopify collab also for their pop-up in Manhattan. And it's also in all of the Chelsea Piers locations in New York. We have uh, the coffee and the tea in there as well. And matcha, that, you know, that's my big thing. Yeah, we yeah. got to get, we got you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I also have my juice bar is coming back. Okay. And so I've been still paying for that. So that's probably putting me in the negative, but you know. <laughs> Do juice bars make money? Did you get into the juice bar business to make money? Was that like, were you sitting back going like, you know what? This is how I'm going to get my billions. That was my first brick and mortar business. And I definitely never sat down with a business plan. That's the only business I never did a business plan for. Mm. But I really did that because... I started juicing to be healthier, waking up at four in the morning when I was doing morning radio, it was killing me. And so just being healthier was important for me. And so I started doing that and I didn't have a juice bar in my neighborhood. So I would go running on the weekends and I couldn't find some place to get a juice, 
you know, to get a juice from. And also the type of juice bar I wanted. I want something with whole fruits and vegetables, not with purees, not with juice mixes yeah, and concentrates. Yeah, like those syrups and purees. Yeah, right? give me the and, real thing. <laughs> and some people, you think you're doing something, because I was like that. I thought I was doing something. Mm. Let me get a strawberry banana smoothie, not knowing it was like strawberry puree, puree and, yeah. Yeah, and juice. And, and so um, I wanted to do something that I felt like would be great in that neighborhood. It had nothing to do with money. And mm. trust me, it had nothing to do with money. Yeah. So would, I'm excited to reopen it. Would you ever start a business? Business without a business plan again? No. Okay. I think that anytime you do a business, you really have to sit down. And um, if you have partners, you have to do an operating agreement. It's just like having a prenup. Mm. <laughs> In case things don't work out, you have to be prepared for that so that there's no confusion later. And so somebody can't take something from you um, so that everybody knows what their responsibility is. But a business plan is important if you ever want to if you ever want to get investors, yes, you have to have one, but just for yourself also, right? To pull out the comps, see what other competition is out there, what other comparable um, brands or ideas there are out there. Also, if it's a brick and mortar, what location, why is this a great location, what's in the area? All of those things that you have to take into consideration, it helps you be organized. And also you can go back to it and be like, okay, um, we strayed away from this, maybe we need to take it back here, or maybe we need to change this business plan and modify it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You have to have a vision for where you're, if nothing else, you have to have your vision for what you're creating and trying to make. And then that gives you a way to know whether you've strayed off the guardrails or whether you built the plan wrong and need the course correct. Okay, so I think we're at four. Is there any more? Um, I'm sure, but right now I can't think of anything else. Okay, what about nonprofit <laughs> stuff or board seats or anything like that? Yes, yeah, so I am on the board for the um, the... American Foundation for the University of the West Indies. Mm. And so that um, actually helps students go attend the University of the West Indies from the West Indies. And so every year I always give scholarships to the students out of my own pocket, but I also help them raise money. I, you know, always host the gala too and help them figure out who they want to honor. This last year, we also honored Don Poo, which was exciting oh, for cool. me um, from Brooklyn Chop House. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I love when things like that all come together. So I'm on the board for that. And I've been on that board for a few years now. Uh, I'm on the board for now Rogers. We are family foundation also. I'm on the board for the Shirley Chisholm Cultural Institute. I love Shirley Chisholm. She's from Brooklyn, like myself. <laughs> 30 seconds on who Shirley Chisholm is. Um, Shirley Chisholm was a, a U.S. senator, black woman, U.S. senator. She also was uh, one of the first black people to run for president, to run for the uh, Democratic presidential uh, candidate. Mm -hmm. Amazing woman. She's the one that says, if you don't have a seat at the table, bring your chair, bring a folding chair. Okay. <laughs> you know, so everybody always quotes that, but that's from Shirley Chisholm. Um, and let me see what other boards I'm on. Oh, and also for the, um, for NYCHA, the fund for NYCHA, New York City Housing Authority. Okay. Yep. Okay. One more that I want you to talk about, then I'm going to give you your final question. Real estate and tell me your last real estate deal. So I recently last, mm, when did I, I close in April on this, um, 30 unit building in Detroit. Okay. Yes. <laughs> 30 this units. is my biggest, biggest, um, investment to date. And I actually partnered up with a couple of my friends on it, black women, I'm my girl Jasmine from the Jasmine brand, uh, Topeka course. Sam. Hey, Jasmine. Yes, hey, Jasmine. <laughs> and Topeka started the Ladies of Hope Ministries, but she's formerly incarcerated. Um, she got a presidential pardon from Donald Trump, and we had a conversation about her having her own, besides having a nonprofit, because people have to understand with a nonprofit, like what she has is a board, right? It's not like you're going to make a ton of money having a nonprofit ever. That money really has to be allocated to Back what it's allocated for, as it should be. But that doesn't mean because you're in the nonprofit, space that you shouldn't personally find out ways to make money and have your own streams of income from other spaces. And so for her, I'm like, listen, let's get you some real estate. Let's get into this. So I did that with her. And we also are allocating one third of those units for women who are formerly incarcerated. And so I'm really, really, really excited about that. Um, and I also wanted to make sure I do it the right way, right? I never want to announce that I'm doing something and then try to figure it out after. That's why I have her in that position. That's her expertise. That's something that she's been doing already, you know, across the nation, even internationally. She built a Hope House in Trinidad, you know, for women who were formerly incarcerated. She has one in Illinois, in New Orleans. She's in the Bronx. She's been doing this work. And so for me, uh, partnering up with her, that solves that, right? She's helping me learn, but I also know it's going to be done right. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I could sit in that one. That You have to come back because there's an entire conversation we can have on that. Um, you are building a purpose-driven business. It sounds like at its core, it is Black-owned, Black-woman-owned and founded. Um, it is anchored in social justice. And like, there's so much good in there that's probably worth its own conversation in general. So I'm going to give you like a year. Okay. When, <laughs> that, when that the building goes. is done, okay, yeah, yeah, you then. should have us all. Because for everybody, for Jasmine, this was her first big real estate investment. For Topeka, this is her first mm. real estate investment also. Mm. And you know, I know there's a lot of people when it comes to real estate, I never want to tell people how to do something that I haven't done mm. when it comes to real estate. So I really wanted to get this project done before I can really discuss every detail of it and before I start doing more. Angela, I just want to say thank you for making the time to be here. Um, I expected us to have fun, but I truly had um, <laughs> the time of my life. This has been an incredible conversation and also important for me for people to understand how much of early hip hop you actually had your thumbprint and hand on. I don't think many people know that. So anyways, celebrating <laughs> you, celebrating your story. Thank you for giving me more life today. Thank you. So then my last question for you is, what does more to life mean for you? Well, more to life for me is really kind of the re- reason why I named my show Way Up with Angela Yee is because my reason was, this is where we are now, but I'm still way up. Like, mm. I'm way up from where I started, but I'm still on the way up to where I'm going to go. And so I never want to feel stuck or stagnant. There is always more to life, mm-hmm. right? And so one quote that I love is from Shirley Chisholm, and she said, we must not just reject the stereotypes that people have of us, but the stereotypes that we have of ourselves. And knowing all of the things that we can accomplish, we just have to get started. Mm, I love that. Let's go get started. Let's go be great. There's more to life. There's always more to life. Keep chasing. Stay hungry. So many gems in this episode. Thank you, Queen. Thank you. Appreciate you. Man, what an amazing, powerful interview Um, to hear Angela Yee talk about her origin story into the woman that she has become, entrepreneur, board member, uh, philanthropist. The work she's doing is incredible. And when I sit back and think about for myself, what are three of the biggest gems that um, I heard her drop today? One, without question, there's this idea about the power of showing up. Um, One, she talks about it from a very basic perspective. Like, I just happen to be the one who was on time, reliable, delivered every time people last, that type of a thing. She also goes on to speak about all of the things that she did above and beyond the basics. She's the first one in the office. She's the last one to leave. As people are handing her projects that go beyond her coordinator, intern, um, or admin responsibility, she's taking those projects and delivering with excellence. And so you get this idea that when you show up for her, it earned her more opportunities to show the world and to show her bosses at the time what she was capable of. So I think that's a beautiful idea in and of itself. The second thing that I think you absolutely have to take away from an Angela Yee interview is this idea about the importance of having multiple revenue streams and diverse revenue streams. This idea that if one stream dies, you can still eat off of the second, third, fourth, and fifth. I think a lot of us probably learned that that lesson during um, the pandemic, right? When you got one revenue stream shut down, those of us who had no other stream to fall back on realized that we were in trouble. Angela Yee, from the time she was in her 20s, has been building multiple revenue streams, whether she was doing it on the freelance side, marketing side, fashion side. Today, she's doing it in real estate, coffee, juice. But you can tell that the empire she's building is sustainable because she's building multiple revenue streams so that the empire is always protected, regardless of what happens to an individual revenue stream. And the last thing that for me jumped out in this interview um, was this notion of, yes, we're going to have multiple revenue streams, but we're going to build synergies between them so that one business is feeding the other business. While she's working with the fashion brands, she's also managing talent. And then she's putting that talent in the clothes of the fashion brands. So you're seeing it in music videos. You're seeing it in magazine covers. As she's doing marketing for one side, she's also able to bring the artists in to be brand ambassadors for that side of the business. And so for those of us who are thinking about um, building more than one business 
business at a time because one business takes all of your energy. But for those of us who are thinking about building multiple businesses at one time, it is beneficial to us to think about how we build businesses that are synergistic so that the energy that we're expending into one business is also having delivering results on the other businesses that we have, um, finding ways to build one business through another business or another line of business that we have. I think she does that part beautifully and uh, love those two ideas combined, diversifying your revenue streams, but then finding the synergies to make them happen. For me, this interview was a winner. Uh, Angela Yee is a winner, beautiful woman, queen, so grateful to have her on our show. When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holla at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois.